Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right. Any uh, autobiographical moments in that particular film? Um, I will not divulge on mine. So glad you're with us. We are in our teaching series, Dia de los Tres Reyes. Uh, some of our Hispanic and Latin leaders here have helped us understand the Three King holiday that is celebrated each year on January 6th. I hope you've gotten your booklets. If you didn't get one when you came in, uh, they're in the back. I've been digging through mine. Uh, I test ran my first ever attempt at cooking pernil. Um, I did a two-pound roast. My wife said pass, so I'm going to do an eight-pounder on Christmas. And I'm going to make that coconut Puerto Rican eggnog and and what I put in it is none of your business. Um, but we're, we're having fun with this, and we've been looking at um, all the earthly kings who got it wrong leading up to this coming Friday, where we'll celebrate Christmas Eve, three services here in Pepper Pike, one in South Euclid, and studying those earliest kings, the Magi, the three kings uh, that are the focus of Three Kings Day on January 6th, that got it right. So last week, Pastor Scott was here, and he talked about David and Solomon. Uh, I talked about Saul two weeks ago, and last week at South Euclid, I talked about Herod, and we're going to wrap up this teaching series prior to Christmas Eve today as we look at King Herod. Now, when you heard that story read for you, whether you're online or whether you're here in person, and you heard Matthew's, uh, the story of what they call the murder of the innocents, it doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? You know, if we know anything in the Bible, there are two Christmas stories. There's really only one story of the birth of Christ. But Luke and Matthew tell it a little differently. Luke is the story that we're most familiar with. In fact, we kind of sanitize it. But it's a story of uh, an edict went out in the empire by the emperor that everyone had to return to their city of birth to be counted for a tax census. And so Joseph and Mary, uh, Mary would have been 14. That's about the age when uh, women in Israel would give birth to their firstborn. Uh, She's an unwed teenage mom we know to be. Uh, Joseph would have probably been about 16. So these two teenagers leave Nazareth and they take a nine day journey down to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's hometown. Now, we always put Mary on a donkey for that trip. It's not mentioned in the Bible. Like I say, we just tend to sanitize it. It's hard to think of these two scared young people taking a nine-day journey that very first Christmas Eve, but that's what they did. And they were down there, and you know the story. The angel showed up to shepherds in the fields and said, don't be afraid. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the heavenly host of angels appeared and sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom God loves. Now, Matthew tells a different story. It's a little darker story. In fact, there's no angels singing. All we hear is that verse that says, uh, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping 
right? Great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Not angels singing, but mothers and fathers mourning, weeping and crying. And Matthew doesn't tell us anything about the nine-day journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, but he does tell us that they immediately after being born, now understand, Bethlehem was not Jesus' home, so he was born homeless, and immediately became a refugee, a political refugee going into Egypt. That journey to Egypt would have taken 30 days. It would have covered 250 miles in some of the most rugged desert terrain. I actually did a Google Earth, and I, I watched that journey. I've been to Israel twi- five times, and, and I've seen the Judean desert, and guess what? It's real desert. I don't know how they survived that trip. But they ended up, uh, tradition has it, just outside of Cairo, Egypt, and they would stay there until the angel would tell them it's safe to go back home. Um, if you have a nativity set, anybody have King Herod in your nativity set? I've never seen him, right? This story is not turned into a Christmas carol. Drian, Drian and Leo couldn't sing it. Um, there's no Christmas cards of this story, right? But Matthew says this is a Christmas story. If we put it on a Christmas card, here's Giotto, a famous artist. He painted uh, this portrait that we have on the screen um, about that murder of the innocents. Now, how would, how would you like to get that Christmas card in the mail? Soldiers dragging babies away from their mothers and baby corpses piled up in the street. But, but Matthew is saying this is part of Christmas. And Herod, this miserable king, he's the antagonist of the whole story. He drives everything that happens. He, he's the reason the family, holy family flees to Egypt. He's the reason that there's weeping and lamentation in the land. And in fact, when Joseph and Mary are able to come back to the land, his son, Archelaus, is ruling in Judea and Jerusalem. And history tells us that he was as no good as his father. So the, he's still even driving the train after his death and causing the holy family family to, to settle in the northern part of Israel. So who is this King Herod, right? He, first off, he's a paranoid, uh, narcissistic megalomaniac. That's who he is. In fact, he referred to himself as Herod the Great. When I go to Israel, if you, the Palestinian Christian guides, they refer to him as Herod the Crazy. And Herod, here's the thing. He believed that he was the messianic king promised in scriptures. He believed that he was the fulfillment of the king that was coming that's greater than David. There was only one problem with that. He wasn't Jewish. He was Edomian, which is referred to the Bible as Edomites. They were people who were descendants of Esau. So when he claimed to be the Davidic king, right up from the shoot of David, will the Messiah come? People say, wait a minute. David came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. You're an imposter. And this triggered Herod. So he tried to prove to everybody how great he was because he became a great builder. He built all these buildings, made sure that his name was on every one of them so people would admire him. He did rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which that got him some favor with the people. But he put all these Roman eagles on it, which were an absolute state of blasphemy. 
He built palaces to himself. We've got a, a picture of a few of them. Uh, if you go with me to Israel, this is a rendition of what's called Caesarea Maritima. Um, it's the first place we visit in, in the Holy Land. It's right on the Mediterranean Ocean. So if you vision that, that was his window out to the Mediterranean Ocean. If you go there to Israel today, this is what's left of it. You'll see on this next slide. And uh, just behind that, Herod had built uh, the next slide, an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Everywhere he went, he had an obsession with swimming pools. I don't know what it was. But you're right next to the Mediterranean. That would have been his swimming pool in his day and age. He also built a palace down by the Dead Sea that's called Masada. And we visited there. Masada is this huge mountain. That's a picture of it by the Dead Sea. Herod uh, built Masada that if there was ever an overthrow in his life, that he could flee there. He believed it to be an impenetrable fortress. And the truth was that uh, later, after long after Herod's death in 66 AD when Jewish rebellion happened against Roman, Roman uh, forces once Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD 960 Jewish rebels fled to Masada and they kept at bay 10,000 Roman troops for three years so Masada was this impenetrable fortress we have a picture in the next slide that shows what it looked like up top here's a guy he, he put an Olympic sized swimming pool in there too this is a man who builds a pool on a mountain in the desert. Now this is my next favorite uh, uh, fortress that Herod built. This is right by Bethlehem, that's it. That's a man-made mountain. Herod built this, you know what he called it? He called it the Herodian. That's the Herodian, right? And I think we got a picture up on top of that is the next slide. Uh, he built three Olympic swimming pools in this one, two concert halls and a theater. And this, he made sure that this man-made mountain, that it was taller than the tallest structure in the world right then, which was the pyramid in Gaza. But he made sure the Herodian was the tallest capital in the, you know, building in its time. Do you hear who this guy is? He's, he's sitting next to Bethlehem, the city of David. And he's saying, do you see how important I am? Who does that? In fact, some people, when they hear this story in Matthew, some scholars, they don't believe that it's true because uh, Herod, there's no record of the murder of the two-year-old boys in Bethlehem outside of Scripture. And almost everything that's in the Bible uh, is, is recorded historically in some documents. This is not recorded, which makes people think maybe Matthew was making it up. Well, I'll let you decide. Let me tell you who Herod was. Herod ruled, uh, he was appointed by Rome. He was a puppet king. The people hated him for that. He was appointed king of the Jews of, of Judea, Jerusalem, in 48 BC. He had to conquer the dynasty that was in place. And so he ruled from 37 BC to 4 uh, BC. He basically would die about a year after this story. Herod was brutal. When he got to power in, in, as the king of Jerusalem, he had everyone that was connected with the Hasmonean dynasty put to death. And that was, number would be in the thousands. In fact, one time he got so mad at the Sanhedrin, they were the ruling priests, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. He didn't like that they disagreed with him, so he had half of them killed. One time he had a party at his palace in Jerusalem, and he didn't like the music, so he had 300 people killed on the spot. 
He was married three times. History says he had all of his wives killed, including his second wife, Mary Omni, who he loved and grieved the rest of his life. But he thought her grandfather was conspiring against him, so he had him killed. Then he had an uncle killed. Then he thought Mary Omni was cheating on him, so he had her killed. Then their oldest son, he thought he was going to try to usurp him for the throne, so he had him killed. He had his second son in line killed. And then the third son in line for good measure, he had killed. Augustus Caesar in Rome, who knew Herod personally, it's recorded in history, he said, it's safer to be a pig in Herod's house than one of his own children. So while we may not have this recorded, this story, scholars think there might have been 300 people in Bethlehem in that day and age. So every male child under the age of two, it might have been a dozen, it might have been 20 children. That's terrible, but it's not even worth a footnote in what this guy's recorded history of brutality was. So it's utterly consistent with who we knew Herod to be. Who does this? Who behaves this way? Who, who acts with this kind of brutality? People who are very, very afraid. It's fear and insecurity. And that's why the message of Christmas always begins with don't be afraid. Because God is, Matthew says, Emmanuel, God is with us. Fear and insecurity. How many know that the biggest bullies are always the ones who are the most afraid? And that's why they melt like water when somebody stands up to them. Because it's all out of insecurity. It's all out of fear. If you don't believe me, believe this great prophet of the ages. Anybody remember Yoda? Who was Herod in Star Wars? Darth Vader, right? And we found out that Darth Vader used to be Anakin Skywalker. Hey, don't be yelling at me a spoiler alert. This stuff came out in the 70s, okay? You had your chance. But Anakin Skywalker was really, you know, he was a good uh, Jedi. He had the force with him. But Yoda said this to him. Do you remember when he was a young boy? He said to Anakin, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. If Yoda had been around with Herod, he would have said that. I sense much fear in you. Here's Herod, the tough guy that executes thousands of people. And now he's totally terrified over what? A baby. Fear and insecurity, friends. You know, if God gave us the fear mechanism, it's a good thing. It's, you know, you've heard fight or flight, right? If I didn't have that fear mechanism, I probably would never have been your pastor. Uh, because I, some of you know I'm a nutty fisherman. I go all over the place. I was up in northern Saskatchewan back in the 90s, fishing in the Hell's River. Now, there's an image for you, right? A preacher fishing in the Hell's River. So I probably shouldn't have been there to start with. But I was fishing, and I started to hear a commotion that I knew was too big to be a deer. And I suddenly realized I have a grizzly that's stalking me. So I made it my way back out to the boat. My friends thought, oh, you're crazy. There's no grizzly bear until he stuck his head out through the, through the brush. Um, and had I not had my fear mechanism, I would have just been lunch. He was not a petting zoo. Okay. You know, and, and so it's a good thing. But the problem is when our fear mechanism connects with our sin mechanism, we don't end up just protecting ourselves. We end up hurting others. That's what fear does. It, why do we gossip? Why, why gossip? Why, why do we tear other people down? Fear, insecurity, not sure that I measure up, so I got to belittle someone else. 
I remember uh, years ago, I was shopping at the Beachwood Mall, and I was just, it was getting real close to Christmas, and I was walking out of Dillard's, and I heard this um, terrible commotion, like a big argument, and I, I started to listen in, and down the way, there was a woman who brought in a uh, 20% off coupon that she had gotten way back on Black Friday, and it had long expired, and the clerk was trying to be so nice to explain that to her, and she just lost her mind. She began to belittle that clerk. She talked about her physically. She, she just went, I'm sitting there, lady, what is 20% worth to you? To just cut, destroy another human being for 20% off a blouse? And I walked over there. I was going to give her a piece of my mind, but she had walked away. So I went up to the clerk and I said, hey, you know that was a lot more to do with her than it had anything to do with you. And I said, I'm a pastor. And she teared up and said, would you pray with me? See, what leads us to behave this way? It's fear. It's insecurity, right? You know those clowns that marched in Charlottesville, Virginia back in 2017? You will not replace us. Remember that? Bunch of clowns, right, with the circus. But I had one of the members of my first youth group. Her name's Rebecca, and she's a professor at the University of Virginia. She was on the hill that night. They, they threw um, torch oil on her and threatened to set her on fire. But they don't know Rebecca like I know Rebecca. She is strong in the Lord. And they're shouting at her, you will not replace us. She said, I'm not trying to replace you, a-hole. I'm trying to teach your kids. See, why, what, what brings that? Insecurity, fear that I may not measure up. This, this manifests itself in so many different ways. I was brokenhearted years ago. I read of an 18-year-old boy in Ventura County, uh, California. He was sentenced to 21 years in prison. And it was linked to something he had done when he was 14. He was at a uh, EO Green Junior High School there in Ventura County. And one of his classmates came out as gay. And one day that classmate who had come out as being gay was talking to this young man and he was worried people would think he was flirting with him and they'd think he was gay. So the next day he brought a gun to school. And in computer class, he shot his gay classmate twice in the head because of insecurity. What will people think? And this happens on, this goes on national levels, right? I grew up during the Cold War. I know some of you will have to Google what that was. Um, we were all afraid. The boogeyman was the Soviet Union, right? And, and there was reason to be afraid, and we were all told. So, so what did we do as a U.S. government? We decided how many nuclear warheads did we need to fend off the Soviet Union? Anybody know how many we built? 70,000. Nuclear scientists said that we had enough firepower to destroy every square inch of the Soviet Union and kill its entire population 30 times over. And you know what that, all the operating systems and those warheads cost us in today's dollars? 8.1 trillion. Now I know we're debating trillions of dollars these days, but understand we carry legacy debt that was produced by irrational fear, right? I'm, I'm going to continue to meddle with you. Look at, the, look at the gun problem we have in our country today. I'm an outdoors person. I, I, I believe in hunting, fishing, all those things. But why do we think we need military-grade weapons? Are all the deer wearing body armor or something? You know, and, and you know, everybody has a right to say, well, I have a right to defend my home. I need a firearm. You bet. You have a right to a firearm. Do you really need an AK-47? Like, is there some marauding army that's going to show up at your home that none of us know about? How do we get here that there's more guns in our country than there are people? Fear. Insecurity. 
It creates, it has comes with many costs. And that's why if I go back to Yoda, Yoda said to uh, Luke Skywalker, Anakin's son, down the way, he said, and Scott could probably do this in Yoda's voice, I can't do it. He said, name, I can do Forrest Gump though. Um, my Jenny. Anyhow, name must be your fear before banish it you can. Right? We need to learn to name our fears. So here's something. I'm going to put a slide up here, and I want you to meditate on this this Christmas. Where are your insecurities? What are your fears? How do you act on them? See, Christmas comes to create this kind of disruption in our lives, to make us face our fears. And, and that's why it's so important that Ma Matthew says that Jesus had a Hebrew name, and the name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go back to that little slide with Yoda. I like that one where he's on Luke's back, right? You see, not that one, there. That's kind of an image to me of the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear, you can face this fear, Chip. Face it, your parents. See, I can do it. Um, dang, that just came out of nowhere, man. I'm here all day. Um, but I, what do we, how do we face our fears? Jesus Christ, God with us. That's why Psalm 23 steadies so many of us in times of grief. Even though we walk through the darkest valley, we won't be afraid. Why? Because you are with me. You're Emmanuel. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that's a, the letter they wrote about love, has nothing to do with weddings. We read it at weddings all the time, but it's okay. But it really had to do with how do we love one another. And he said at the very end of that letter, if you remember, he said, these three abide, abide these three. He said, everything in the universe can be reduced to three things, faith, hope, and love. And so I want to wrap this message up with you of saying that our, our, our Emmanuel, God with us, comes to give us faith to accompany our fears, hope to steady us in the midst of our fears, and a perfect love that can conquer our fears. First, faith to uh, accompany our fears. I love Psalm 34 that says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Do you remember when the disciples get afraid? Do you remember they're out in the boat with Jesus and he's asleep in the back of the boat and a terrible storm came up on the Sea of Galilee? You know the story. And they're waking Jesus up and they're saying, don't you care that we're all gonna die? And Jesus said, peace, be still. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, and where is your faith? Now that sounds like a really condescending question from a cranky old church person. Where's your faith? But Jesus was never condescending. So what was he doing? He was saying, where is all these things I've been teaching you and, and the things you believe? How come it's not acting out in your operating system of your life? My grandma used to say, faith is putting legs up under what you believe. That's why I say faith is never a noun, it's a verb. It's living out our belief. We're not, we don't have faith, we faith. And Jesus is looking for that and saying, uh, put this into your, into your everyday life. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism that I grew up in, and, and I, I'm in that lineage of preachers. One time he went to Peter Abelard, his, uh, his spiritual advisor, and he says, I'm worried that I'm losing faith. And he looked at him, he said, Wesley, preach faith until you have faith. And then because you have faith, you'll preach faith. He was calling out 
the operating system in us. And that's, we need that kind of faith to accompany our fears. And we need a hope, a hope to steady us in the midst of our fears. One of my favorite scriptures is in Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. It says this, We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. What that was is in the temple. You know the curtain where the Holy of Holies was, that thing, the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones was looking for back in you know, the 80s. That thing was in there, the presence of God. And, and only, only... On On the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, could the holiest man in the land, the high priest, go behind the curtain in the Holy Holies and they would tie a rope around his waist because they were afraid if he died in the presence of God, they'd have to pull him out. But our scripture says, no, we have a better high priest, Jesus the Christ. And he went behind the veil and tore it down so we would not have any separation from God. We would not need priests and temples and sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice and all the sacrifice. And we then have this hope, which is an anchor for the soul. My archaeology professor in seminary spent years in Rome in the um, catacombs. That's where all the Christians were buried that were fed to the lions and sacrificed with the gladiators. In fact, that's where the underground church had worship in the catacombs. And he taught us that you can go and find every Christian tomb that's there because they marked it with a Christian symbol. Some would have a cross, some would have a fish. But he said seven to one, the most common symbol on a Christian grave in the catacombs is the anchor. We have this hope to anchor us. One of my favorite hymns of all time is my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. See, Herod didn't have that anchor. In fact, well, he had Masada, right? The, the impenetrable fortress. You know what, what, what Masada literally meant? It meant strong foundation or support. How did that work out for you, Herod? He wasn't anchored to the hope in Jesus Christ. He was anchored to the hope in himself and his own uh, image. So we need that faith to accompany our fears, a hope to steady us in our fears. But here's the most important thing. We need a love to conquer our fears. And that's why John writes this. He said, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, I don't know about you, but I want God to continue to perfect me in love. I learned to do something along the way that sometimes I say, God, help me love the people I'm afraid of. You know the first time I said that prayer? It was after 911. You remember 911? All the planes were grounded, right? There was no air travel after that. Literally, the, the first day that planes started to take off from Cleveland again after 911, I was on one. I had to go to Austin, Texas to preach for four consecutive Sundays. And I remember literally, first time being on a plane after 911, I went to sit down, and there was the seat that next to where I was to sit, there was a very obviously Middle Eastern man about my age. And he wasn't dressed in Western clothing. He was kind of in traditional garb. And I sat down. I'm like, what am I supposed to do if he starts, if he tries to light his shoes, should I grab him? Or, you know, I'm still in pretty good shape. And and I thought, man, I am so ashamed of myself. Where's your faith, preacher? 
And I said that that was the first time I prayed that prayer. I said, God, would you help me love this man? And we had the best flight into Chicago O'Hare. And if you've ever flown into Chicago O'Hare, if you have a good flight, you're a lucky one. Um, but I had a great flight. And we had the best conversation, he and I. We didn't talk about 911. We didn't talk about Christianity or Islam. You know, we talked about our wives, showed pictures of our kids, what we like to do. And I prayed that prayer, God, help me love so it will cancel out my fear. Put Christ's love on your fear sometime. Rub that in real deep. And you might be amazed how it will dissipate. Where is your faith? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, fear knocked at the door, faith answered. There was no one there. Russell Moore is a guy I have some respect for. And he said at a conference one time, something that really made me think. He said, you know what? He said, we've done it all wrong in the church. We tell people in the church, you need to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus, he said, does not want to come into your life. Your life is a wreck. He wants to bring you into his life, into his existence, into his kingdom. And I'm going to preach that on Friday night. Matthew wants us to know that there's always Herods in the world. But which king will you follow? The one who comes to seek to destroy or the one who came to give of his life as a ransom so that we might live? Herod was terrified of the babe born in the manger, but, but he saved my life. How about yours? Is he your Emmanuel? Let me close with this story. I'm going I'm to wrap this up, guys, so you can give Grand Leah the thumbs up. I just read this story recently. It's from a woman named Auburn Sandstrom, and I just need to read it to you. She's actually a professor of writing right down the street at the University of Akron. And I saw one of her articles that was posted. It was autobiographical, and it says this, one phone call that changed an addict's life. And this is her telling her story, this professor at University of Akron. She said, I was curled up in a fetal position on a filthy carpet in a cluttered apartment. I'm in horrible withdrawal from drug addiction. I have a little piece of paper. It's dilapidated because I've been folding it and unfolding it, but I can still make out the phone number on it. I'm in a state of bald terror, fear. My husband is out and trying to get a hold of some of the drugs that we needed. But right behind me, sleeping in the bedroom, is my baby boy. I knew I wasn't going to get any Mother of the Year awards. In fact, at the age of 29, I was failing at a lot of things. So I decided to get clean. I was soon going to lose the most precious thing I'd ever had in my life, that baby boy. I was so desperate at that moment that I wanted to make use of that phone number. It was something my mother had sent me. She said, this is a Christian counselor. Maybe sometime you could call this person. It was two in the morning, but I punched in the numbers. I heard a man say hello, and I said, hi, I, I got this number from my mother. Uh, do you think you could maybe talk to me? He said, yes, yes, of course, what's going on? I told him I was scared that my marriage had gotten pretty bad. Before long, I started telling him other truths, like that I was a drug addict. And this man just sat with me and listened and had such a kindness and a gentleness. Tell me more, he would say. Oh, that must hurt very much, he commented. And he stayed up with me the whole night 
just being there until the sun rose. By then, I was feeling calm. The raw panic had passed. I was feeling okay. I was very grateful to him. And I said, I really appreciate you and what you've done for me tonight. How long have you been a Christian counselor? There's a long pause. He said, Auburn, please don't hang up. I'm so afraid to tell you this. He pauses again. He says, you got the wrong number. I'm not a therapist, but I've really enjoyed talking with you. I didn't hang up on him, Auburn writes. I never got his name. I never spoke to him again. But the next day I felt like I was shining. I discovered that there, there was this completely random love in the universe, that it could be unconditional, and that some of it was for me. And it also became possible as a teetotaling single parent to raise up that precious baby boy into a magnificent young man who just recently graduated from Princeton with honors. In the deepest, blackest night of despair, if you can get just one pinhole of light, all of grace comes rushing in. I wanted to call her. I did. I wanted to write her. And I want to let her know there is random. There's love in the universe. It's not random. It is unconditional. And I, I know who was on the other end of that phone. He's been there on the other end of my phone anytime I needed him. And Matthew called him Emmanuel, that he's God with us. And if you can bolt down the faith in him, the hope that comes through him, and the love that comes from him, you'll have a ballast to own up and face your fears, and you won't become a big bully that harms others. You'll become an agent of healing in Jesus' name.